I'm going to end up in the news next week. Man hits CEO in face <laughs> during presentation training. And your, your defense was, my, <laughs> my honor, I was just bringing him into his unconscious mind. You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. Hello and welcome again to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers, a mashup of creativity, curiosity and philosophy, a not-so-serious business podcast which hopefully will spark enthusiasm and thoughts around what's good for business and good for life. And as ever, I'm joined by my co-host and collaborator, Simon Banks. Simon, how are you today and what's caught your curious eye this week? Well, John, have you heard of the term basball? Basball? No, I haven't. No. Enlighten me. Well, okay. No, I thought you might have. So, look, I'll give you a little bit of a background. Obviously, you know you have a cricket team in England, uh-huh, correct? Uh-huh. And you know the Ashes are coming up. I do. Did you I know do. That? I have very little okay, information right. and knowledge around cricket, but that I do know. Yeah. Okay, and apologies to people who live uh, outside Australia in England for this little moment. But essentially, English cricket team had lost 17 tests in a row, weren't doing very well. They got a new coach come in, Brendan McCullum from New Zealand, Mm -hmm. a new captain, and he's instilled in them a sense of play without fear. Okay, And as a result, in 12 tests, they've won 11 out of 12 tests, games, and completely revolutionized the way that that team plays. And they're fearless and aggressive in a good way on, on a sporting field and enjoying themselves. So I just thought a little notion we often talk around that fear of failure. And every player says the fear of failure has been removed and it's revolutionized that team. So I thought what a nice little, mm. a little I guess, leap into what we talk about so often, but more in a sporting context. Yeah. And again, what does it look like when you can honestly say, screwing up is okay yeah no i like that you can immediately see how you could bring that into any conversation with the team couldn't you where can we play without fear how would we play without fear yeah easy to say hard to do so it's just a nice example of an organization that seems to or has been doing uh, very well now we're never here to talk about sports. So look, what's got your curious eye, John? <laughs> well, I was delighted last week to catch up with Neil Malarkey, who's been on the show with us. And Neil's just launched a new book called In the Moment. I'll put it in the show notes, but he was giving a talk about that. And and of course, it's it's around building confidence around communication and creativity at work and diving back into those roots of improv, which is where he came from, which we explored on the show with him way back good few months back. So I was delighted to catch up with him and say hello. So uh, yeah, it's all about yes and. It's all about listening more than anything else. And it was a great, it was a nice little masterclass from Neil, as you might imagine, as he engaged us as an audience and everybody sort of looked at the floor and said, please don't pick me. Please don't pick me. (laughs) (laughs) And just a little bit of context, uh, you know, Neil Malarkey started the Comedy Store Players with Mike Myers from the Austin Powers films 30, 35 years ago, Uh, been in a bunch of films great improviser, communicator, corporate speaker, etc. Yeah, and I've been making my way through the book and uh, the yes and is this idea that whatever someone says is a gift and you say yes to it and then you build on it. So the yes and is a build and there's a nice part in it where obviously that could be misconstrued and someone could say yes and that's a really bad idea. (laughs) 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 So it can go wrong. 
but he gives you plenty of hints and tips and ideas and approaches that you can take that can make it go wonderfully well. So yeah, so that was delightful. Anyway, Simon, we have a guest episode, which is always very exciting for us. Who is the curious cat we have with us this week? Well, John, I've seen this curious cat nodding along as we've been speaking over the last few minutes. Our guest is the Polymaths Polymath, recognized as a top 30 global guru in both body language and communication. This is what gets me excited as well. She was an opera singer for 10 years with the Vienna State Opera. Her qualifications include a Bachelor of Economics, Bachelor of Music, a postgrad diploma in music, another one which I need to ask what it actually means, I couldn't work it out, a Master of Applied Science in Organisational Change, and a Master Practitioner in Neurolinguistic Programming. But that's not all. She's completed an award-winning PhD around the unsung wisdom of the mind-body-voice connection she is named Vocal Intelligence. And if you think, surely there can't be more, <laughs> oh, yes, there is. She's a sought-after commentator discussing leadership, body language, and effective presentation on television, radio, and in the media. Her recent interviews with Channel 7 in Australia, where she analyzes the body language of the royals, have over 2 million views. She's got a bunch of high-end Fortune 500 clients from around the world. She was voted Keynote Speaker of the Year in 2021 by the Professional Speaker Association and is the author of Resonate for People Who Need to Be Heard. She's the virtuoso of the voice, the high priestess of hot air, the femme fatale of unfailing attraction. Let's welcome Dr. Louise Mala. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so, Louise, what's caught your curious eye this week? Well, both of you have just caught my curious eye. And what's so fascinating is combining what you just said, you know, which is there is no failure. You know, you said that, Simon, and then, John, you said you're at an event and everyone's going, no, no, don't pick me. I find one of the key things to teach people about performance is that the minute I say, John, would you like to, to come up? You go, yes, please, absolutely. So it's like not yes and, but yes, please give me the opportunity. And the thing is, it doesn't matter if you fail. And I think that's a nice combination of what you both said. But what catches me this week, apart from what you both just said, is actually this morning, which is Trump. Is Trump and his indictment are just absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, you can't take your eyes off it, can you? It's just, but you're doing it like that, I think, a little. Aren't you? And I'm, I'm showing on the video here, looking through my fingers in that kind of, oh, my, where is this going to go? Yeah, where is it going to go? That's the question. Uh, you don't know where this is going to go. It's like we've never seen it before. What What is going on and what is the pathway here? Like I can tell you what's going to happen to Megan and Harry in a heartbeat, but I can't tell you what's going to happen to Trump and Biden. <laughs> and uh, we're joined obviously by people all over the place. Where are you today? I am in Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne, Australia. Uh, give us a quick peek out the window. What's happening out there? What's what's the view from your window? Yes, it's uh, 10 to 5, so it's um, getting dark. It's winter. It's pretty overcast. It's pretty miserable in Melbourne. We're on the bottom of Australia, and we get those rains and cold winds and all sorts of things. So that's what's happening here in Australia. End of the day, dark. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up, John. Yeah, yeah nice one. So, now, <laughs> there was no, now, there was no to, intent. To change the... I, I don't want to say that it's 27 <laughs> degrees outside, but, you know, I'm just saying. 
just to lighten the mood a little bit, Louise, we want we want you to imagine you're, you're at a dinner party. You're sitting with John and I, and we're sort of we've you know we've just met. But often you know, at a dinner party, you might have been in those events where it can feel a bit stilted at the table, and someone says, "Oh, what do you do?" And they say, "Oh, you know, I work in procurement." And you're not really sure what a follow up question is, and it feels a little bit boring. So John and I have always thought instead of you know what do you do for a living, we thought we'll ask you some interesting dinner party conversations to kickstart the the event now john he's got some uh, lovely wine from portugal this week some good reds uh also have a malbec from argentina so we're going to sit down and break bread now what's giving you joy at the moment the football the football i've never followed football my whole life but i did a keynote for actually it was women in football and i was talking about my team and a lady there said to me i actually happen to be the head of membership and i love what you're saying could i give you a legends membership and i'm oh. like yes please <laughs> so i went to the football on the weekend and that was something i've never done all my life and loved it i have to ask is this australian football or football as we would understand it yeah, no, not football, as you would understand it. Australian football, AFL, as it's called. Um, 83,000 people were there. Big game. Yeah, it was great. Now, to put that in context, John, 83,000 people just for a regular run-of-the-mill game. So this is bigger than you get at Man U or Man City yeah. or any of those massive clubs. So this is huge as well. And uh, if you're wanting to understand AFL, People describe it between a cross between soccer, ballet, and basketball. Isn't that sort of <laughs> it for people who live outside the country, or you know, something along those lines? So yeah, brilliant. But what gets me is not just the players; it's the people in the audience, you know, whatever you call them, and a man behind me who just consistently yelled out throughout the game, "Get in front! Get in front!" Throw it to my attack. And we are nowhere near. We are nowhere near the players. No one can hear us. I hear it. Hear him. You know, but he's every single person in the stand could hear him. And I'm thinking, you know, what are you hoping for with this? What are you hoping for? But maybe hoping for at the end of, uh, you know, that player's getting interviewed and they go, well, it's a great win today. And he goes, yeah, that bloke up in stand 23C. God, he made a difference. Like, I was really lost. He kept, I heard, get in front, and I thought, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, outside of enjoying the football, uh, Louise, what's the hobby you're losing yourself in at the moment? I have horses. I have two 17-one-hand warm-blood horses, and I do natural horsemanship with them, which is horse whispering, oh. and I love to walk without bridles or anything on and we go for a walk and we go for a swim and we have fun and we play hide and seek <laughs> is what we do <laughs> you play hide and seek with your horses explain that how does that do. work do you, <laughs> who hides and who seeks <laughs> does the horse put yeah, these hoofs over his eyes they're both eating grass, and so I take one horse and I go, come on, let's go, and there's a whole lot of trees in a dam. And so we start running around the dam, and the other horse goes, yeah, I don't even care. You know, I'm fine here. And then he realises we've gone. And then gallop, 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 he comes running, and then we turn around and go back the other way and hide behind a tree. And then gallop, 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 he comes back and runs and chases. It really is hard. It's hard. I love it. And it's great fun. Okay, now we're going to pour another another glass. The first one's gone quite quickly. Who or what inspires you now? It's funny. 
I've always thought of myself as towards positive and um, going towards something really inspirational, but I'm afraid I'm a little bit away from negative. And what inspires me and gives me fire in the belly are useless performances. So politicians who stand up and address the public with their head down and you can't hear them or CEOs who, who speak and uh, are inaudible and you know, can't keep the flow going, which is just what I did, couldn't keep the flow going. But it, it drives me nuts it, and it inspires me to keep going with the work that I do. Yeah, the politicians must be giving you a rich source of interest at the moment, aren't they? Politicians and leaders. I mean, you mentioned obviously Trump earlier on, but yeah, do you look at them and study them in terms of, and then oh, use that I... to help further craft what you then deliver within organisations? Do you think about it in that way? Well, the idea is that politicians are people in the public eye. So people in the public eye are great to analyse, to show people what's happening in the world or what works or what doesn't work. So it's just the fact that they're in the public eye. And here in Australia, we're pretty low-key and we have a Prime Minister, uh, Mr Albanese, who seems to think that not being visible is possibly the best thing to do, <laughs> keep out of the news. And then an ex-Prime Minister who once said to another politician, I will not be lectured by this man. And that was such a brave statement that we have a 10-year anniversary of that statement. <laughs> um, it's called the misogyny speech. And then there's Trump over in America talking about, you know, the abuse that he talks about to Biden and the judges. And, and I just think, what? Mm. What? It's fascinating. Uh, can you give us someone who you think is actually getting it right at the moment? Who's a politician or leader who presents themselves well? Zelensky. Zelensky, and, and I don't think that's any accident that Zelensky is an actor mm. and a comedian. Not an accident. The way he sets himself up to camera, the way he, what he's surrounded by, the clothes that he wears, what's in the background, he's magnificent. Yeah, yeah. He's magnificent. The other one, of course, who's just resigned from politics is Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who does, uh, who has been extraordinary. Going to change tack here, uh, Louise. What big question are you wrestling with right now? Oh, great. Um, big question. And I really am wrestling with a big question, is how to get people inspired to think about their delivery. Delivery, delivery. And it is a fascinating topic. I'm writing a book at the moment called Gravitas. And Gravitas, you'd think that would be an easy topic. It's not. The definitions of oratory, rhetoric, gravitas, uh, people argue about them. They vary. People think that rhetoric is what we're talking about. And it's actually not. We're talking about oratory and we're talking about skills of delivery that have been left out of the literature, left out of the study, left out of our conscious awareness and massively to our detriment because the Edelman Trust Barometer puts trust at an all-time low. And of course, gaining gravitas is about building trust and respect. So now is the time for gravitas what do we need to do to get that? Yes, I like that. Well, and I love the way you're rolling your <laughs> R's there as well. So as a uh, one-time Spanish speak, I was quite, <laughs> you know, quite good at the, uh, the rolling R. All of these things you've been talking about, if someone asks you, how do you, what do you do? How do you describe it? And the follow-up question is, which we wish had with our Kahlua, if you're an intersection of three or four things combining in the middle, what might they be? 
Mm, okay. Well, um, what do I do? I do leadership communication. That's my passion with a focus on the nonverbal skills. And that includes voice and body. What is it the intersection of? It's the intersection of a complete mess. That is, I guess, simply, it's about business, leadership, and communication. But when you start to look at that, you've got 32 fields of voice that actually impact on that. You've got body language, and people call me a body language. My work's much deeper than body language. I like to call it semo corpus. That's the sermon of the body from ancient Rome. That's what they called it. Um, semo corpus, which is not just about how do other people perceive you, but actually how do you present yourself so that you are your best and healthiest self? So it's a much bigger field than body language. Voice is a huge field. And then the field of communication and how we have frameworks and structures for what we say is, again, another minefield. Well, just as you were saying that, to Louise, I was just thinking as to how people have had to think about this even more in recent times with the remote working, working from home, how communication has changed, particularly within organisations. Have you noticed that there's a greater emphasis to think about delivery as well with the different mediums they might have to use? John, 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 you have <laughs> just hit a big I knew it, I knew it, I knew I'd get thing, this. <laughs> oh, you know, the thing is we were... Uh, you said I'm allowed to say it once. Shit house. <laughs> Absolutely shit house at communication at most people. And then what happened is we've gone virtual and it's become a disaster. So one of the reasons that I've gone back to ancient Rome is because we've got the model of communication wrong. We think that there's a sender-receiver and that particular model of sender-channel-receiver, message-channel-receiver was actually only formed in the 1960s and it's a one-way linear model. So we get onto a, a virtual communication and we think, I am the sender, you are the receiver. And people as the receiver feel that they have no responsibility for communication. They even turn the screen off or they sit there just looking really grumpy. And certainly the people I deal with and at the highest levels have almost no idea. Quick example, a man I spoke to who said to me recently, I want to have more credibility with senior management. And he's talking to me and I said, mate, mate, and he's looking off to the side. I said, wait, wait, tell me you don't sit like that. He said, oh, yes, I do. I said, you have to look at the camera. And he's, oh, well, your screen is over there. I said, I don't care. You have to look at the camera. So then he looked at the camera, but the camera was about four foot above the screen and he's got his head. I'm like, <laughs> wait, you know, I'm, I'm here for thinking down there for the answer. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, so we go back to ancient Rome and it says, really, communication is two-way. The minute you get up to present, you lose equality. It is equality of the listener and the sender, and both have equal responsibility. We have to rethink the model of communication and get back to each equal responsibility. I love that sentiment. Again, as you describe that very succinctly and eloquently, that's great, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'll often talk about we're two grown-ups coming together for a conversation. It's both our roles to make it meaningful and productive. But as you described it there, yeah, just creating the model and saying that it isn't just one way. You can't just passively take it in and go, oh, they didn't do a good job. Therefore, I'm absolved of responsibility. <laughs> didn't understand a word they said. Yeah. Well, okay, we'll ask a question. No. <laughs> no, it's interesting this as well. Like as someone, you know, who does a lot of 
work online, often post. We'll do some catch-ups and different things. And, uh, you know, easy to have a call. And I think one today, everyone started off, there were like 12 people online and 10 people blanked out. So I said, look, come on, this is like soul destroying. <laughs> Looking at those blank screens. Yeah, it's awful. So, yeah. I, over the pandemic, I did presentations uh, for an hour and a half where it was just me talking to screen. And these were big keynotes that I couldn't turn up to with thousands, 15,000 people in Europe. And I'm standing there in Australia with no feedback whatsoever talking to a red dot for an hour and a half. And that is cruelty to dumb animals. It's it's terrible. It's it's not humanly uh, the kind to anybody really so yeah look again i'm bubbling now with questions again you start to think of okay and what's happened in all this use of technology what has it done to our communication skills as being you can imagine there could be a deterioration in some of our skills we didn't have any, did not have any so you tell me what where people are working on their voice and their vocal tone you tell me it doesn't exist when it comes to we look at the perception of others and criticise others, but do we actually look at our own bodies and how we stand, how we initiate sound, how we gesture, how we use our arms, our hands, uh, how we use our eyes? We don't talk about it. So, Louise, uh, I was reading on the LinkedIn profile that it says that Dr. Louise Marler captures the missing ingredient of leadership, your voice and body language. And it has enormous benefits for a leader's presence, their influence and confidence. And that draws a lot from the lost art of communication from ancient Rome, which you touched on a moment ago, and how leaders can use those techniques to create competitive advantage at work. So just talk to that for a little bit more, because I'm really interested in that, the idea that gravitas was as you say, from ancient, Ro sorry, gravitas, is one of those <laughs> those things from ancient Rome that denoted seriousness. It was something that was thought about that would help build trust and respect. And then you mentioned oratory. And I was thinking as I was, I was reading it about, you know, senators, uh, great senators of past ancient Rome, such as Cicero, for example. And you would have those as being a source of inspiration to people who wanted to be able to mimic and imitate uh, people like him but yeah just talk a little bit more about that because that's really interesting maybe what are some of the key components maybe of gravitas that people can start to embody oh john it's a bit of a story but y y as you mentioned i sang opera and the people that i sang with in opera actually were in their 80s at the time when i was there and they were people who had come through the 1930s 40s 50s and as a consequence had a a certain education that was tainted by an, the nazi regime and i have to say hitler of course stole from the romans and he did that because he actually stole it from mussolini who stole it from the romans mussolini was a roman so a lot of the nazi regime stemmed from an ancient Roman influence. Now, I never realised this, but I did realise my teachers taught me about gestures, about voice, about spatial psychology and different skills that other people weren't given. And I called it presence and influence and have been working on this for decades. And then suddenly I went back recently and started to think, 
of ancient times and ancient Rome. And I, I open up this book and go, oh, my God, all of this existed before. You know, I didn't make this up. It all existed in ancient Rome. So I thought, right, okay, what actually did exist in ancient Rome? What is relevant today? And it was interesting because you said we imitate Cicero. We can't imitate Cicero. It was a very different time. But what we can do is look at the rules that Cicero followed and see how that applies to the modern world. And one of the fascinating things is we think about gravitas. I'll do that R again. <laughs> yeah, please, please. Loving love it. it. <laughs> as um, <laughs> we think about it as seriousness, and that's part of the definition. But uh, 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 in ancient Rome, gravitas had weighting of seriousness with levity. Levity was wit. Humour were critical and weighted against the seriousness. And one of the theories that's put forward was in 1647 that um, Newton and the and the gravity we began to retranslate gravitas as gravity and only one direction of seriousness. It's not. It's levity, humour, wit, well balanced. I love that. I, and again, we we recognise that, don't we? Those uh, moments where you have a, a serious topic, but just that slight lightness of touch. I mean, Obama would have been sort of one of those people who could bring that balance to his uh, some of his, his oratory, wouldn't he? He would be a, a more modern example where you go, ah, he would bring it alive me, with something that would connect. Obama, Obama is is sex on a stick. You know, he is. Uh... <laughs> I was going to say that, Louise, but, you know, I thought I'd let you. <laughs> He's gold standard. And uh, examples where, for instance, when Obama went to the British Parliament and said, I believe the speakers before me were Nelson Mandela, um, who else were they, Gandhi or someone else, and then he said, that's either a very high bar or the beginning of a very good joke. Um, <laughs> how high risk was that yeah. in front of the British Parliament? And everybody loved it. It was fabulous. That just raised an interesting point as you said that, because I think people gravitate to the serious side of it because that's less risky. Would that be true? It's real high risk to bring wit into the mix. That is the thing that puts the fear of God into a lot of people. It does. And uh, that's one of my biggest struggles is how to teach people how to use wit, how to use it. So, you know, it leads to a message and then to get them to take the risk to go out and do it. And once you and fascinatingly, the classic progression is uh, people go, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Then they go out and they do it and they get a fantastic response. And then they are addicted and then you've got to kind of hold them back because you've got to do it properly. <laughs> well, it just turns into a stand-up set, the next presentation. Been <laughs> in the shopping line at supermarkets? How's those bags, hey? <laughs> anyway, here's next year's projection. <laughs> I'm thinking, John, when you and I, many years ago, John and I used to work for the same organisation in the, in the UK, like a training and development organisation, and they very graciously paid for us to go to like a Tony Robbins four-day seminar where you do hot coals and different things. What I do remember from that, whatever you might, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed it, but whatever. I know John was a bit more of the, the sceptic thinking back to those times, but he, he was a great orator, if that's the right way, and he had so many tones and levels in his voice, and he could go high, he could come down. 
down to low. He could sort of be funny. He could be serious. Is that, is that a little bit of what you're talking about? or It's Simon, it is. And obviously I think Anthony Robbins is a, a genius, a genius yeah. and magnificent in what he does. The last thing you could praise him for is his voice. The okay. last thing. All right. yeah. His voice is totally It's been a long stopped. time. Yeah. worn out, it's damaged. Oh, you know, he's struggling <laughs> with that voice. Um, but, uh, he's I been booming for too long, hasn't he? He's been booming yeah. for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it, I had a bad experience like the two of you where I went to Anthony Robbins once and a friend invited me and I thought, oh, God, you know, I'm not going to this. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Oh, I'm going to have to hide behind a post until it starts. And um, and I went in. From the moment he walked down on stage, I was captivated. I'm there doing, do your move. Yeah, I'm doing my move. And I'm walking. I was supposed to be going out for hot coals for, for dinner. No, I'm walking the hot coals. I'm doing the hot coals. I did that. <laughs> and I thought that was genius. And what was so fabulous were all these young men, youthful men, so excited. Where do you find someone who can excite young men into some sort of learning activity? I, I, I praise you, praise you <laughs> for doing fabulous. My friend left. My friend left. She hated well, that, that was almost John as well from memory. So... Uh... <laughs> Now, we spoke around this earlier with you've got more degrees than most of us have cups of coffee. And I said this is an ultra compliment as well. So you're, I guess, a keen academic amongst other things. And you're also an adjunct professor as well. So there's so much going on. But I guess what's always interested me from the moment we met was your background in opera. And you've done a little, you've spoken a little bit about this as well. But how do some of that other things maybe blend into what you're doing now? Maybe even just the way you think or you know, the way you, you look at the world or you experience things. Is there something, you know, a little bit more left field as well, which is coming from that operatic background and music and performance? Well, yeah, it was, um, it was a being I used to love. If you weren't singing, I'd stand in the wings and watch performances and see what people did and how they actually got the best out of themselves to give across where they stood. You, the curtain would go up and it was a big competition to who would get front and centre, you know. <laughs> it was hilarious. And people belting out and getting down on their hands and knees and, oh, sweat dripping and people <laughs> at the side of the stage, people throwing up, people. It was fascinating. Sounds like a good night out. Yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> where was this? Is this? People are paying to see this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And it was it was fantastically vibrant and exciting. And spending time with Professor Miller-Price, who was my teacher in body, who was a gold medalist and a medalist over four Olympics. Do you know how many decades that is? That in a physical sport. This woman, I remember at one stage, she broke some bones in her back and she said, I don't need a spine. I have muscle. <laughs> you know, she was a killer. And, uh, and um, I mean, she walked in now, oh, sit up straight, sit up straight. Um, but, um, you know, these people worked hard. They knew what practice was. And mm. all of this is ingrained. And I would think, I remember once with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf literally spending one whole day on two notes, deciding how much air to puff into the note. Does one go, here, or does one go, ya, or does one go, ya, ya. You know, what do you do? Ya, ya, ya. Uh, two notes the whole day, the whole day experimenting. <laughs> and then when I came into business, I, I 
which is a moment frozen in my mind, when a manager got up, it was someone who I well respected, and got up in front of the group and suddenly goes, okay, everyone, well, let's have a look at, and I think, <laughs> hang on, hang on, mate, sorry, what's your strategy here? What, what, what are you doing? You know, wake up, think about it. What on earth are you doing? And uh, it's just fascinated me my whole life. Just on that note, uh, Louise, do people, I presume in some of that work, just to that point about the manager there, do you have to play back? You record them, you play them back to themselves? And is there a moment where they go, oh, <laughs> oh, no. John, Edding, you should say that. From my background in opera, let me tell you how much we used video recording mm. as a feedback to Never, never. And that was the other thing that blew my mind when I came into corporate work was how people would video each other and spend the rest of the day watching it. And I'm like, you cannot be serious. <laughs> That's not a change strategy. The thing is when you watch yourself, you're watching from a third-party perspective, but the action is happening inside you. And the way to give feedback to really change behaviour is that as you are doing it, stop, what did you do? Oh, as you would stop, what did you just do? You know, as you, and you have to be in the moment, in the body. That's how you. That's how you get change. Not by watching videos back from a third party perspective. I don't know about you, but I have you know videos in my drawer that I open up the drawer. And go, ah, oh, come on, oh, oh, watch that. Um, you know, it's hard. It's, it, it's terrible. I just, just to say, Louise, when you were going the feedback and that. Like that. Is that you slapping them when they're doing that? Or is it... <laughs> so it sounds really painful bit of feedback, but when probably I was works. in Vienna, we did get hit. We did get hit. My what? teacher was slapped me in the face. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've had to tone it down, John. I've had to tone it down. <laughs> <laughs> now I do I do have a question around that that clap. There was a real jolt in my both my and John's physiology and you you smacked it off your hands like sounds like a rifle going off. So is there something in that that reacts with the way the body Yes, yeah, so there's something a little bit more in that than just a clap? Totally, Simon. I, what what we're dealing with is we're not dealing with the rational mind. We're dealing with the unconscious mind and um, the emotional mind, the unconscious mind, and it doesn't. It does not respond to watching a video two hours after the performance. It's, it'll just sit there and make excuses. The unconscious mind has to be stopped in its tracks, stopped in its tracks, and rejolted. <laughs> so yes, a clapping or yelling or making a noise or or any of us hitting. I'm going to end up in the news next week. Man hits CEO in face <laughs> during presentation training. And your your defence was my, yeah. <laughs> my honour. I was just bringing him into his unconscious mind. Just coming into a little bit around body language for a moment, Louise. I know that's one element of it, but um, I was curious about the amount of curiosity and maybe the need to pay attention is so critical for you to be able to to be able to understand others, you, to be able to read body language, to respond to someone's body language. Just how can we cultivate that real deep sense of curiosity or ability to pay attention to what we're seeing as we're communicating? Any thoughts around that, how we can well, utilise it both for ourselves but also in understanding others? 
is that people make excuses for not making eye contact and they'll say that they feel uncomfortable. And then when I actually point out to them that I don't care, um, they actually make the excuse that other people will feel uncomfortable. And I'll say, well, actually, they don't. If you actually are able to soften that eye contact by facial physical movement, but not moving the eyes, but facial physical movement and uh, nod, blink, smile, those kind of strategies, then people are not uncomfortable and you have to watch people. So first of all, we need to use our eyes. But actually, body language is fascinating because I do something uh, which I have learned to call creative listening. And it's something I learned from my time with uh, body work with Professor Miller Price was to actually embody the bodies of others. So when people are, I sort of go slightly out of focus and become that other person. And I can feel the muscles in my body firing the way that other person's body is firing, and I can feel, therefore, what they're doing. It's it's a technique with singing teaching, and a fellow called John Paul Moses called it creative listening, and you get into the body of the other person. So it's not as disconnected as mirroring, where you're looking and then mirroring. You actually become that person and start to breathe at their rate, start to feel what muscle tensions there are. And, um, yeah, so that's the technique. Presumably there's a little bit of that which is then that rapport building as well which plays into how you build trust with others the kind of tuning in i suppose getting on the same wavelength element of that right 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 well you certainly that would be a skill for for that i find that i use the technique when i have to analyze people when I was doing singing and with Professor Miller Price and we used to work with actors at the Boog Theatre in London and Wales and all over the place, an actor would be, you'd be watching and you'd go, I think they're a little bit lopsided on their jaw, you know, and you'd be trying to pinpoint a little something in their tongue tension. And it was quite difficult. You really had to embody them. And how easy is it when I come into corporate work and people go, I tell you what I'm going to say is. And I'm like, yeah, okay. this is really good. <laughs> so, Simon, are you getting... Are you getting the idea she's going? John's voice is a bit reedy. Simon's is a little bit too bassy. They ought to. They, uh, ought to, uh, they need some lessons. I probably do. Um, I've already. I've already written uh, down here one of my notes. Attend Louise's next course. So Louise, I'll see you maybe sometime gonna, this year. We're going to anyway. come back. We're going to come back in the fall and go. Welcome to the occupational philosophers. <laughs> Ravishing. <laughs> now I'm interested, Louise. Like. Like in Australia, you're known as the body language expert, and uh-huh. obviously that involves a huge amount of curiosity. How do you how do you even start to navigate that stuff? And like, what's the the I guess how do you navigate it? How do you know if you're right or not? Or how does how does that all play out? So, field I know nothing about, other than I say to my kids, "You're looking a bit shifty at the moment." You're a bullshit <laughs> artist, so you know what I mean. So I got a little bit of it going on. What does shifty look like, Simon? A bit of. Um, <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eye movements for those listening at home. <laughs> you, I, I guess you never know if you're right. Uh, experience tells you whether, in retrospect, will tell you whether you're right or wrong. But uh, you're always guessing and it's your perception yeah. um, what's going on and you're just getting a lot of, isn't that interesting you're saying, how do other people learn that skill? You know, I, don't, I guess I don't teach body language to other people. 
So I, I help people be aware of themselves. I get asked so often, how do you pick truth and lies in others? And I get asked it constantly. And the issue is, I don't work with liars. I work with people who tell the truth. So I'm not trying to tell, pick truth or lies. I'm actually trying to work out what somebody who's speaking may be doing that makes someone else think that they're untrustworthy. And that that's the issue. What are you doing to block your trustworthiness, which is inherent within you? You know, I don't I don't work in the criminal world. I don't work with liars. I'm fascinated by it. Don't you love those? Um, don't you love those YouTube clips of people who just murdered their whole family? <laughs> yeah, watch them all the time. Me and the family, we sit down. Hey, kids, look at this bloke. Look Get the popcorn out. This is a classic. Now, is, is there? Is there? So I have worked with criminals. Now, I just want to put this. I used to work with. Um, I used to work be a school teacher many many moons ago, teaching uh, <laughs> visual, visual arts, but in juvenile justice. So you, um, as in for a department of education school, juvenile justice. So you start to read, and you almost get a sixth sense of how things play out, and energy, and the way people are acting, and a whole bunch of different stuff. So you do, you just become. As it may be part of what you do, you just become better because you're being curious. So someone will be with you and you can start to read what's going on for that person, maybe ahead of what they are even. Or Yeah, and obviously it's all about spotting patterns is what yeah. you're doing. So mm. there's no right or wrong. It's just is that part of their pattern or does that vary from their pattern? So you work out what is the baseline and then how do they vary from that baseline. So one of the interesting things is that uh, uh, Prince Harry had a jaw that was back and would smile, and then over the last few years, his jaw has come forward, which is all to do with uh, tension in the temper mandibula, the backs of the jaw there, it brings the jaw forward so that now the bottom teeth meet the top teeth. And that's not just something he's doing on occasions, that's become a new baseline <laughs> of, uh, of aggression and tension. Mm. It's funny, I'm starting to go, ooh, all right. Yeah, I don't, exactly. I'm as you were talking about here, it, I, I was doing the same. <laughs> <laughs> I, was bringing my, I was bringing out my bottom jaw like an anglerfish. You know, those, <laughs> those ones that bob around at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Now, John and I, uh, as we do, was, I love having you on the show because uh, there's plenty of humour with what you do. Now, I know uh, humour and passion is at the heart of what you do. Now, I remember when I first met you, we were at some little weird little event and for the creative skills training council or something like this i'm trying to go back in my mind like i and i'd just come back from england so like yonks ago and you were speaking around um people what they do men do with their hands and how it often imitates some sort of action you don't want to have on stage and i remember sitting there crying with laughter (laughs) at this so i love you bringing this sort of this humor into your work and we sort of touched on this a little bit but how do you you know i guess with you know, executives, I would say, most executives would say, I don't want to be known for having a sense of humour. I do serious stuff in a serious world. How do you get people feeling comfortable with that? And I know we touched on it a little bit, but how do you get people to find their inner funny or even realise there's a, is there something about realising there's a humorous soul deep down there? I don't know, long questions, <laughs> as I'm prone to, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's my whole life with getting people to change that yeah. one part of my life is analysing what people are doing. The next thing is getting them to change, which is a whole new world. And I bring that from my singing background about getting people to change because getting somebody to sing would have to be, you know, one of the hardest things in the world. And it's 
doses of humour are essential because humour has massive benefits of freeing the diaphragm, opening the throat. It's huge. So uh, we've got to bring back laughter. We've got to bring back smiling. I am adamant about it. And I guess I teach people that there is a process, there's a place where it fits, and then a way that it works by leading to some serious message. Um, you can't just have, I said, there's a very big difference between an icebreaker and what I call a creative link. A creative link is something funny that leads to a message, whereas an icebreaker is just, oh, let's jump up and down because it's cold. Okay, let's get back to our engineering. <laughs> you know, that, that um, and where do you find the humour? I find it doesn't have to be funny. It can be unusual. So I subscribe to different sites like everything interesting and they come up with weird things about people who are buried alive and and uh just different things uh look the news is funny the newspaper's full of funny things acronyms jokes i've got a file called good things i never look at it anymore but i used to where i collect jokes laughs and cartoons and put them in and you know what can you grab at to because and to teach people that it's not just about being funny it's actually about scrambling the brain which is a hypnotic technique so i might be saying let me speak about our results and then say did anyone see on the weekend that you know and suddenly you're off and it brain scrambles. It's like people being punched in the head. They go, what, what, what? And then, boom, you lasso, boom, and tie them back up with a message. And it, it brings them back to the point. So it's hugely beneficial. As you were saying that, Louise, it made me think it's like a verbal clap or slap. <laughs> the joke, the unexpected, it jolts, it jars, it, it confounds expectations. Yeah, and people will say when they first learn, they might say, oh, good morning, everyone, and then they say, let me just share a story with you or let me tell you a joke. I'm like, no, no, no. You, you know, you have to go just into the joke. You have to go into the story because it is a scrambler. It has to break your pattern. Mm. That's yeah, the yeah. So, And it, it is high risk. You're always taking risk. But I guess the risk is, Louise, uh, being bland and boring and not having any cut through. And I would say, wh which risk is greater? You know, it'd be those two. And I guess there, there's some, you know, motivational saying there, the risk is in the risk you don't take or something. Would that be right? <laughs> <laughs> You'll be up there with Anthony Robbins before you know it. <laughs> So, Louise, it's time for one of our thought experiments. I'm sure you know that thought experiments were tools that uh, philosophers and thinkers of the ancient times in Rome and Greece and ever since used to expand their thinking, to explore ideas and to come to new insights and enlightenment. However, our thought experiments are slightly different. <laughs> So, <laughs> John, I can't believe you're saying that. I know, I know from having read around uh, a lot of the website and, and some of the great work you do that the, the Mahler method is one of your pieces of signature work. And it's all about demonstrating key concepts that help people develop their skills in presence and influence. So what I thought we'd do is we wanted to share some other famous methods and see whether you know them. And we'd like to know whether you've used them. Okay, does that sound okay? So I'm going to say the title of a method, and you're going to just see if you if you know what that is, and we'll we'll go from there. So we have about five or six of these. Here we go. So number one is the loci method. Have you heard of the loci method? No. 
Okay, I'll give you clue number one. Clue number one, otherwise sometimes known as the mind palace technique. Any thoughts on that one? The mind palace? Well, as a linguistic master practitioner, I'm sure I've, I've heard it, but I do, do I use it? No. Ah, okay. And do you know what, what it is, Louise? The mind palace? Is that something, as you say, within NLP that you've come across as a, it's a memory technique? Well, are you talking about the Roman rooms? And uh, I call it architecturally designing your material, but I use a different name and I use that on a daily basis. So everything base. So I'm always architecturally designed all around me. And that's what I teach. And it's hugely successful as a memory technique for people who are speaking to get them away from paper. Ah, excellent. Oh, great. So very relevant then. So you're absolutely right. This is a a strategy for enhancing memory using visualizations of a familiar environment, such as your own home. And as I say, known as the mind palace technique used in Greece and Rome. And you would walk through your rooms of the house and then there would be something then that you would connect. And the idea was that you more effectively can remember if you associate something with something that's well known to you. So it's... yeah. I think I use is build a new house. Uh-huh. Ah, right. Build the house I want with the rooms that I want that are um, particular blocks of information and then furnish them with information. Wow. So, wow. I love it. You've, mm. you've, you've gone a step further. I mean, Sherlock Holmes used it to remember his shopping list, I think. Stuff like that. But you... <laughs> But it's very just, successful. Uh, this, how grand d- designed are your memory palaces? Because mine's like a three-bed semi on the outskirts of uh, London. What's your, have you got something more grand that you use? Mine's a studio flat, no rooms. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, basic rooms with space in them and uh, places, but you know, a lot of timeline, a lot of timeline work. Excellent. Timeline, good and bad, right and left, you know, all of that sort of thing. <laughs> all right. So, Louise, I think we'll give you a, uh, a big tick for that first one. Now, this, uh, the next method is called method acting. Do you know what method acting is? Oh, isn't method acting Stanislavski where you become the person, you become their personality and yeah, absolutely, Louise. You're very good at this. So this is the idea that an actor must authentically experience and feel the lived reality of the character he is playing. So it also now underpins almost everything that Americans, you know, deem to be good in the world of acting. So, you know, Marlon Brando. Yep. Marlon Brando, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Faye Dunaway, and of course, you know, Stephen Dennis as Paul Robinson in Neighbours are some of the, the, well, the see, highlighted really names. So This issue of authenticity comes up all the time and people don't understand that in acting you're not acting someone else you're finding that character within yourself and then expressing that as your true self it's not imposing another character on top and that's a misunderstanding people who don't do acting don't understand very good very good i think that's another that's another point isn't it that's another point there yeah another point it's two out of two louise (laughs) okay we're gonna get a little bit harder now so yeah we're gonna we're gonna dial it up now uh, Louise. So the fratting Bonaparte method, the fratting Bonaparte method, it's a, a way of eat- Oh, no, sorry. What is, do you, have you heard of that and have you used it? No. Tell me about it. The, fr- the fratting Bonaparte method was a way of eating popularized during the reign of Bonaparte, where you could only eat food of one color each day, as dictated by a Farron ball paint chart. 
blue tended to be a day where you didn't eat a lot. I've never heard that in my life. That would be really? correct because that was made up. So, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> well done, Louise. Well done. This nothing going past you in our thought experiment, but I think I might do. I might do number six there, uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. John, to uh, okay. to wrap us out. So, yeah. here's where I want you. I want you to see if you can guess what the uh, the name of this method is, rather than saying it first. Okay, you replace every word in your presentation with the sound of "fwa." Or a Latin phrase such as cogito ergo sum to hopefully confuse and or impress your audience. That's the something method. I don't use that one. I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give, maybe I'll I'll do it simply from a British perspective. So you might do a presentation and every other word will be cogito ergo sum. There you go. <laughs> I think if you did that in Australia, they'd just walk out. Yeah. Well, this is pretty much what happens in England as well. But let's say if this were attached to a person, it would be known as the what person well, you, method. Well, it sounds like it's a, a kind of a white Anglo-Saxon male baby from wartime. <laughs> Almost. A little bit more modern, touch more modern, but very recent. Think of the hair. Mop. Well, not Boris Johnson. Hey! Yes, the Boris Johnson method. Now, John, do you just want to wrap that up again? How does it work? So, <laughs> <laughs> the Boris Johnson method, using every other word with the word and the uh, uh, objective of this policy. And uh, as I said, cookie go some. And that was the, yeah, that was the end of it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it worked that, for him. Little f- uh, he obviously <laughs> hadn't been to your uh, to your, one of your courses or studied your method. Some things in life I don't understand, and he's one of them. Louise, it's time for a little uh, rapid fire round, and this is where we dive into you know the not so serious business podcast sort of advice, trying to be a little bit true to our namesake. So. We want to look through the lens of uh, solopreneurs, teams, and you know, executives and leaders. So what can we do as solopreneurs or as individual members of a team to have more confidence and more presence? Breathe. Breathe. Everyone's holding their breath and uh, we need to keep breathing. You know, air in and out and of the I, body. I noted with that, uh, Louise, that that's one of the first steps in that Marla method, isn't it? You talk to that as well as one of the first things yes. and go, okay, <laughs> we've got to start with the basics. All roads lead to breath. <laughs> All roads yeah. lead to the breath. Loosen yeah. the diaphragm. <laughs> now, is there anything you would suggest like, like you could literally practice on a daily basis to uh, put this into your subconscious or your unconscious so it becomes a bit more natural? That's a really good exercise. As Simon, everyone is obsessed with breathing in. And I like to turn that completely on its head and say we need to focus on breathing out and getting air out of the body and stop sucking, taking air. How about we give air out? Um, so focus on an out breath. And to do an exercise that's known as a kapalbhati where you do a short, sharp breath out, like that, and the stomach goes in, the air comes out, and it's just a little jolt in the um, jolt in the system gets the breathing back again. 
episode to doing a couple of bati regularly. <laughs> Breathing out, out, out. out all right, out, all right. Out, stop out. slapping me. I think you <laughs> <laughs> John's got a black heart. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's quite strange, though, isn't it, Louise? That we don't think about that breath. I mean, we are again. I know mindfulness <laughs> brings us all to the breath, out, and, out, but out. I don't think about it. And you breathe in, in, in. That's just classic, actually. I say to people, breathe out, 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 and they go in, in, in. I'm like, no, out, out, out. Get it out. And that's like, look at you looking so awkward. Oh, what? Who? Oh, 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 oh. You know, get it out. Get it out. <laughs> you will be breathed. You will be breathed. Create enough vacuum in your body. Air will come in. Don't worry about it. You know, life's not over yet. Air will come in. Don't worry. Stop breathing in. <laughs> Breathe out. I love it. I am going away, and I am going to absolutely practice my breathing later today. Um, that's, and I'm holding myself differently already. That's the other thing as well. Is as soon as you think about breath, you start oh. to want to hold yourself differently. Is that true? Exactly. Yeah. Part of it. You can't breathe if your your body's not set up to do it. Um, just thinking about or turning attention to teams, Louise. What about teams? I was yeah. curious early on where you said about communication, much more focus needs to be around the model of communication that breaks that linear idea of send and receive, and that it's more yeah. of a collaborative exercise. So that plays into teams, doesn't it? What can teams do then that would enhance their collective confidence and communication? Turn that breath into speech and speak because some sessions that I do with certain organizations, there might be so many people on screen and I'll say, anything here, anybody, you know, nothing, nothing, dead silence, nothing. I speak, 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 yell, talk, get air flowing between us. So the air has to flow. The word inspire comes from the verb spirare, to breathe. So we inspire others. We in-breathe others, which means we get air into the bodies of others. That's what inspiration is. You can't inspire anybody by holding your breath and not speaking. And all of the voices is the breath out and the vocal folds just happen to vibrate as you're doing it. So, you know, that's it. Speak. And what do you... Yeah, what do you say for someone, uh, we hear a lot around synchronous, asynchronous work, some people don't like to speak up, some people sort of dominate the conversation. How does that maybe all play out when someone says, oh, that's not my natural way of engaging? Or is there some thoughts around that or any advice in that space? Yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to communication, we're all making excuses for why we can't do it. I've heard everything from <laughs> I'm an introvert to I don't feel comfortable doing it, to, and I think one of the, when people get about, they run out of all excuses, I get this, I'm left-handed. <laughs> <laughs> Where I'm going to go with that. But uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sick of the excuses. We speak. We are humans who are supposed yeah. to speak. To speak. Okay, so we've let some people go berserk and do all the speaking. It's so easy. You just have techniques. It's called feedback. Nobody's doing it. Feedback. And you have to say, um, there's even little games you can play on the computer where you can measure how many voices spoke and then go, oh, well, John, your voice went for 67% of the meeting. Um, and that probably won't work next time. So let's watch that. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not difficult. We've got to do feedback. And stop shutting up and then being bitchy about everyone mm. who speaks. Um, 
definitely going to take the excuse of I'm left-handed. I'm going to be using that this week when I'm asked to do some jobs around the house, I think. <laughs> I always just say I can't. I'm an artist. Sorry, it's not my not my thing. So now, interesting enough, though, on the sort of the excuses part, I'd worked with a um, during lockdown as everyone were doing a bunch of stuff online and ran a uh, a visual storytelling program. So we're teaching people to you know tell stories with pictures, which translates really well to online. However. It was very this high-end, groovy tech company, let's say. You would think, you know, everything, we're out there, we're innovative, blah, blah, blah. Oh, we don't like to make people put their screens on. So I've got about 100, 150 people on. There's like one person with their screen on. And I thought, well, how did this? And she goes, well, people mightn't feel comfortable. So I thought, and I asked her, I said, look, I feel really it feels really um, about a one out of 10 if I'm sitting here with nobody with their screen. I, I love it if you put your screen on, but there was a real before the call, I don't challenge anyone like that. And, you know, 90, 95% of people put their screens on. All of a sudden, we've got this connection. So I guess it's that we can impose written and unwritten rules around us with communication. And then I think specifically, that one, oh, I'm not good at that. Or So a bit of mindset as well with all of this, would you say, or mindset or reprogramming and you know taking off blinkers and different things? We've gone into a shocking patterns, shocking patterns and excuses coming out every pore of our body as to why we can't communicate. And it's going nowhere. We really have to put on our thinking as they used to say when I was about five, uh, put on our thinking caps and start going, what do I need to do to communicate? As the prevalence of or the surge and use of social media and communicating, whether that's current generation or younger generations using tech to communicate, has that had, in your mind, an impact on their abilities to then communicate human to human, as it were? Yes. Well, it was very interesting. We have a program, a comedy program in Australia called Utopia, and uh, they were talking about they make all of their communications less than three minutes because nobody can hear. I believe that TED Talks have come down from 18 minutes to 12 minutes because nobody can sit through it. It's got ridiculous. So we've actually created a world of what I call in horses. It's called learned helplessness. And it's when you've been so abused that you no longer even know what the abuse is. You just go into a coma and just take the abuse. So people are so accustomed to being bored to death on screen that they just, uh, and I can turn on, I can turn on the Instagram videos and sit there for hours just watching the 30-second, 20-second Instagram videos, and it's mind-numbing. It's mind-numbing. It's great, but it's <laughs> mind-numbing, and it's, it's I don't know, it's not doing as much good. If there's one bit of advice you're going to give one for leaders in any size of organisation and want to you know, lead and communicate with confidence and authenticity, what would it be? Move. Move the air in and out of your body. Move your arms. Move your head. Move your body from place to place. Move. Get moving. Not, not in the style of Michael McIntyre our- skipping across the stage from one end to the other. <laughs> so we, we've got limits to the movement, but yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, but our very first guest on the show, yeah. Dr. Peter Lovett, who's a dance psychologist, and he says, move first, think later. It's the natural order. And he said, we all think if we move, all the thinking stuff's going to fall out of our head. Okay, no, it's the opposite. We move and all, all, yeah, all of this uh, stuff comes together. Yeah. 
that's one of the one of the techniques for performance anxiety is to have as we spoke about the roman rooms all organized with gestures that reach for them and then you don't know where you're going but your hand will reach out and oh that's where i was going that's right it was here the hand will reach out the body will tell you where to go if you have it programmed Okay, Louise, we've reached out to our audience and we've got some listeners' questions. And as always, uh, I thought it would be really nice to read them out and share a little few pearls of your wisdom. John, do you want to go Do you want to go the first one? Uh, yeah, I can go. This, this is from Colin of Scambury Falls, Western Australia, and he says, My wife says she can tell when I'm lying. What are some of the ways she might be able to tell? And do you think she might be lying about being able to tell when I'm lying? <laughs> I don't think she's lying about being able to tell. I bet he gives it away. <laughs> and uh, it will be because he'll do some weird eye movement that he doesn't normally do. Click, click away. Um, or suddenly the voice will change. You know, I don't know why. Uh, uh, the voice will change or suddenly he'll put his hands across his face or touch or, or um, you know, hide in some way. There'll be a giveaway. <laughs> So, Colin, you are absolutely busted, okay? So uh, maybe... I just maybe... to work out what you're doing, Colin, and stop doing it. <laughs> now, the next one is, let's see, it says, I have to defend myself in court next week on some trumped-up charges, which are totally false, not true. It's a big witch hunt. So my question is, what should I do with my face when I'm talking to the judge? And this is from Big Donny, Florida, USA, Marilago or something. I'm not sure. Anyway, what's... Yeah. <laughs> Big yes. Donnie. Well, not what Trump does. So um, what he needs to do is develop a neutral face, neutral face where there's no muscles of the face, a slight lift, a slight smile, and blinking, blinking every four seconds, nodding slowly, blinking every four seconds, and a slight lift. A bit well. <laughs> We're all trying that, aren't we? <laughs> I just look slightly weird. I think I'd get sent down for even longer if I started doing that because the way I do it anyway. <laughs> now, we've got one more, uh, one uh, more got, question. Uh, so hopefully, Donnie, hopefully that's uh, big yeah. Donnie. Hopefully that's yeah. Uh, useful. Yeah, good good luck. <laughs> I don't know if you said it. Right, last one. This is from uh, Rishi in London. Ah, there we go. Hey, Rishi. So I'm delivering a speech at a conference next month and want to know how I can speak with conviction even if I don't believe what I'm saying. How do you work with it until you do believe what you're saying? You know, there was a story of an actor that I worked with and the, and the uh, director said, could you be off stage by the end of this act? And, he's, and uh, he came back the next day and he said, I, I, I've gone away and I don't think my character would be off stage by the end of the act. And the director said, yeah, why don't you go away until your character would want to be off stage by the end of the year. and uh, so you know get up and saying things you don't believe well don't say them or go away until you believe them okay there we go okay, Rishi. So, Rishi uh, yeah uh, that's, that's useful okay now Rishi's phoned in a few times so we'll, we'll we maybe get him on the show one time as well so look thanks for those listeners questions as always absolute gems and joy Now, Louise, just to wrap up our show today, one thing you couldn't do without in your life right at the moment. Gilbert, my golden retriever. We are building the Occupational Philosopher's Manigesto 
So what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included on our manigesto? Well, it would be breathe and move. Is there a book we should be reading other than obviously uh, your own? Mm-hmm. Gestures and Acclamations of Ancient Rome. And is there an author of that? or? Yes. Uh, Aldretti is his name. Aldretti. Can you say that again, Louise? That sounded lovely. Gestures and, and what was it? Gestures and? Acclamations. Wow. Sounds great. That's on my Christmas yeah. list. Love it. Now, look, Louise, I'd like you to project yourself forward many years from now, making your way into a lovely retirement home. And uh, all the residents are gathered in the sunny lounge and they all look up to the door as you're led in by the kindly nurse and she introduces you to the group and says, hello, everyone. This is Louise. She's. How would you like to be introduced? Uh, first of all, I'm not retiring. All my mentors were in their 90s <laughs> and I'm going on doing what I'm doing until the last breath. But uh, she sings. Ah, all right. We can run with that. Yeah, very good. Very good. Now, Louise, what are you up to next? I know you've got a book in the works. What else are you up to next? Oh, my Gravitas Masterclasses, um, retreats for Chief Executive Women, retreat in the Yarra Valley. So running retreats, speaking at conferences, um, off to Singapore, Port Douglas, Hobart, New Zealand, all over the place, speaking, speaking, speaking coaching and uh, retreats. Right. And when's your book out, are you thinking? Like, you know, how long's a piece of string? I appreciate that in the Uh, realms of another book. But how, have you got a ballpark time when you think that might be? Yeah, before Christmas. Oh, okay. All right. So what's this space? And uh, where can we find you, Louise? Uh, Connect with you, buy you drinks? I'm the only Dr. Louise Marler in the world. Hey. So I'm... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Louise Marler, M-A-H-L-E-R. Boom. Into that, I'm there. <laughs> well, Louise, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. And again, I think you embody all those wonderful things uh, you talk about, the wonderful gravitas. Uh, great hound. <laughs> there we go. Gravitas. All right. <laughs> a great energy, a great sense of humor, and look, an absolute joy to have on the show. And look, as always, the amount of notes you take and the aha moments you get, and I always feel like you know doing this, doing this show is like the little mini PhD. I never uh, got to do because we learn, <laughs> we learn so much each week. And look, yeah, it's been an absolute joy. So thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Louise. I echo everything Simon said. It's been a real delight, and uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, John. Very, very, very good show. Again, what a great delight to have Louise join us and her use of the rolling R as well. Now, as always, it's nice to dissect, just to spend a little bit of time sort of diving into some of those key things. What were some of your key takeouts today? Uh, Well, for me, there was the thing about breaking the model of communication, that idea of the old model, which was send, receive, and a very linear line that sort of extended between those two points. And just that recognition to say, look, it isn't about send and receive. It is both parties engaged in something that the the listener has 
a very active role. They are listening, but they have an active role in that communication. And actually, that's quite key to it. So yeah, break the model of send, receive into something that's much more two-way and is genuinely a, a dialogue. I also like the gravitas talk, which was then, you know, what was the essence of fantastic oratory in that regard? And it was that idea of being able to deliver in a way that had some serious tone to it and put your message across, balanced with a bit of wit and levity, much like we do, really, Simon. Yes. (laughs) High intelligence, yet with levity. Levity, yes, and a sharp wit sometimes. (laughs) And then last thing was leaders, just thinking about communication more, not just voice, but the whole body. Again, we kind of instinctively know this, that it's all about projection and stuff. So it's not just with your voice, but your arms, the way you move your body. Movement was key. And I just thought that was really interesting. Not too much movement, as we said, not Michael McIntyre skipping across the stage from one side to the other, but certainly things that would sort of have you moving the body would allow you to engage with the audience more and and be a more effective communicator. So that was me. How about you? Well, I like that you were moving as you were saying that. So I was, I've got wasn't that. I? I was kind of doing the sort of tells you the unexpected, sort of waving arms. <laughs> sort of like a, uh, I've had too much fun at Woodstock type of dance. So, um, <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so my, my takeouts, that whole idea of breathe out, I'd never, ever, ever heard someone say that. So I think just that notion of, you know, concentrate on your breathing out, which, you know, the counterbalance will mean you breathe in better. Uh, I read on that one around that passive, but don't be a passive listener, be an active listener. And I think it's a really nice thing. Next time you're on a Zoom call, be active. Like, yeah, yeah be active because you send that. It's, it's a two way thing. So don't sit there and just, you know, zone out and expect the receiver to do, I mean, the sender to do all the work. Now, I like this one stop making excuses for the patterns we have developed around poor communication snap out of it okay you just because you're left-handed or whatever (laughs) (laughs) does not mean you can say oh i'm shy or i really like she's quite i guess quite um forceful on that yeah look step up step up that's how we engage with the world and just that whole thing around uh, i didn't get it right ravitus okay (laughs) what's that you've just brought something up there simon yeah i think so i need to have a jink but just you know your energy your presence your way of engaging the world is just so important so be conscious of your energy your style and all of that stuff which makes for meaningful engagement well there we go and finally we should note that when you're giving feedback to people and you want to sort of jolt them do it with a clap not a slap yeah (laughs) So, John, to wrap us up, what happens from here on in? Well, if you like the show, then please tell your friends. We'd love them to join our community of listeners. Leave a review. If you really do like the show, please leave a review. review. It really does make a difference. It's lovely, obviously, for us to see that. It does spread the word in a way that's a bit more effective. So that will be great. So please do rate and leave a review. And obviously, in the meantime, Simon, what should people do? Always stay very, very curious. Have a lot of fun. Don't be scared to play a whole lot more. Make stuff with your hands and... When you skip out the door in the morning, date life.